Welcome to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri, a Beverly Hills-based psychologist, certified sex therapist, and the founder of Modern Intimacy. Thanks for joining me here where I talk about sex, relationships, mental health, and dive into your questions with practical answers and real solutions. Each week, I share insights aimed at helping you build an authentic and healthy relationship with yourself, with others, and with your sexuality. It's time to get naked emotionally, mentally, and on your own time, physically. Has anyone ever demanded that you smile when having a bad day? Or have you ever had to put your feelings to the side to make those around you feel more comfortable? These are just a few really minor examples of emotional labor, which is the uncompensated work that many women and minorities do to uplift those around them every single day. Today I'm here with Rose Hackman, a British journalist living in Detroit, who recently released a new book this March called Emotional Labor, and it is a timely and necessary look at this phenomenon. The work in this book explores the history and academic study of emotional labor and brings it to our attention boldly. Rose's research on emotional labor as an invisible, devalued, feminized, and yet essential form of work has sought to drastically reframe our view of women, work, and the nature of persistent inequality. I'm so excited to be here with you, Rose. Thank you for for joining me today and welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. When I found your book a few weeks ago, maybe, maybe a month ago now at this point, I was so excited because there aren't many books written about emotional labor. And this is something that as a psychologist, it is literally my job, (laughs) but I do get paid for it in this work. But for so many of the people that I work with, and certainly in my personal life, which I'm sure is true for you too, emotional labor is something that just goes completely unacknowledged. It is very invisible and can be kind of a hard abstract topic for people to to learn about, to think about, and to start to question in their own lives. How did you get started researching this and, and how did this book come to be? Thank you. It's wonderful to be here and I'm so happy to get to talk to about this with a psychologist especially. Um, so I am a journalist by training. Um, back in 2015, I was working for The Guardian out of New York. So The Guardian is a British news organization, but um, they have New York head offices here in the States. And I was working as a features writer. And my features editor at the time assigned me this topic. She was very excited about it. Um, She basically said, Rose, I've got an amazing story for you. It's emotional labor as the next feminist frontier. And she was very excited. I was a bit underwhelmed. Um, So I had for years been covering structural inequality and I had a lot of biases in terms of what emotional labor was about. I think a lot of those biases, quite interesting, eight years on, I'm actually encountering them in other people and I'm having to really make a case that this is a very serious, important, pressing topic. Um, But back in 2015, I started researching this topic initially thinking, oh, it's just, you know, about privileged white women in straight dynamics who are, you know, annoyed with their husbands. And it is that, and that's serious, but it's also much more. Um, so that was fall of, well, it's, I was assigned the, the story summer 2015, fall 2015. The story came out in The Guardian. It was very widely circulated. And 
by that point, my whole way, this sounds so over the top, but it's real, my whole way of looking at the world and looking at interactions between people had completely altered. I never just took interactions for granted. I understood that very often there was one person that was putting their needs below the needs of someone else, and that could be informal workplaces, it could also be at home. So that was the beginning of my emotional labor journey. And um, a couple of years later, I was very lucky. I got a book deal and I've been writing. So I wrote the book over the course full time, over the course of six years, eight years of research total. So it was a long journey to get here. Wow. And worth the wait because the book is, it's incredibly um, dimensional. I mean, you include uh, a really rich conversation woven throughout that really brings to center our history in America, including enslavement. You bring in elements from clinical psychology. You talked about the neuroscience. And of course, you talk a lot about inequality um, across gender, race, and class, and other dynamics. And I think that this book is not only so timely, but it's so well researched that it's really hard for anyone to find any uh, any bias within themselves that isn't answered in this book. So let's talk a little bit about some of those biases that you unearthed within yourself. Yeah. So the truth is the way in which so often I think, sadly, in current day America and actually just really the world, the way in which we're able to dismiss issues, I believe, of structural sexism that are deeply intertwined, as you mentioned, with classism, racism, other isms. The way in which we dismiss that is by saying, this is just silly. And the other way in which we say we dismiss this, actually, it's funny, I was just on TikTok before coming on half an hour ago, and someone had commented, you know, it's up to you to change your behavior. Now, very often, individual behaviors can really help deal with structural discrimination and biases. But it's not fair to tell, in this instance, for example, women, your behavior alone can tackle this massive structure that has effectively been set up against you. So to go back to my own bias um, in 2015, I was definitely doing the first. I was definitely saying, this is just, this feels silly. This feels very niche. And in fact, by talking about women's issues as petty little concerns, we end up not having these huge conversations that don't just affect you know, people's private lives and home lives, but also affect who gets paid what in the marketplace, who gets promoted in white collar jobs, you know, why we have a huge care crisis right now is because we're not valuing emotional labor. We're not seeing it. We're not talking about it. It's so true. And you really hit on such an important point in the book that was a bias that I'd held for a long time um, and really started unpacking several years ago. But I think it's a conversation that is very loud right now in certain circles and social media and certainly within the therapy spaces. Um, and that is the question of, is emotional labor something that women just do better because women are better at, at emotions? And you had such a great um, quote. Let me see if I can find it. Um, 
When interpreted as the act of caring for others or of being emotionally expressive and communicative and putting others' interests before your own and having a communal mindset, emotional labor is seen as women's work. But you went on to also talk about how these characteristics are actually viewed erroneously as being intrinsic to the experience and the DNA of women. And that's just not true at all. Can you talk a little bit about that? Definitely. I mean, you, I'm sure, are very well acquainted with this. Fundamentally, humans, all humans, regardless of gender, are relational. We all need one another in order to survive. We all need connection to one another in order to survive. So if you think about emotional labor very broadly as the work of connection and meaning and belonging that we sow between each other, that can't just be something that one gender is able to do. Very clearly, all genders are able to do it. All humans are able to do it. But as things stand, Societies really cast women as the ones to bear this load. And we see it not just as a load that women should do. We actually refuse to see it as an action. So often what happens is we effectively tell women that they're just altruistic naturally, um, that they naturally put everyone before themselves. And as I think you hinted at, in neuroscience, in psychology, we see very, very clearly that empathy might be something that as women, we're, we're better, we have more practice at it because of the expectation that we should be constantly empathetic, altruistic thinking of others. But there are a lot of studies that show that given the right motivation, men are equally able to be empathetic, to accurately understand what's going on emotionally with someone else. It's just that they're not forced into doing it the way that we are. They're not policed if they don't do it. Well, you mentioned a really brilliant study in your book about this very fact. And I, I was so blown away, not surprised at the outcome, but blown away just at how simply put this study allowed the information to be. So the study, if I remember correctly, was um, a question about were there organic differences in the capacity for empathy between men and women and when studied without any priming um, motivators, everyone's capacity was the same. However, when women were given some sort of nod to the idea that their capacity level was tied to their performance of femininity or their performance in their womanhood, they exceeded their previously demonstrated capacities and scored higher on, on metrics of empathy whereas the men did not. But when there was a financial incentive, right, $1 for kind of an empathic response and $2 for an incredibly empathic response, men and women performed at equal levels of demonstration and empathy. And I think that that brings about just such an important question. How do we properly motivate everyone <laughs> to to get engaged in uh, the validation and the skills building and the um, valuing of emotional labor. I mean, that's the huge question, and I need I need everyone's help with it because I think, and that's really where I end up towards the end of the book, is nothing short of a total change in our collective value system. Nothing short of that is actually going to finally um, 
correct this massive unfairness that we all stand upon when we offload emotional labor onto women and minorities and then protect men, white people from having to do it. So how do we incentivize them? I mean, it's almost like a catch-22, the world we're living in. Anything that's remotely seen as female or feminine immediately gets seen as an insult. It's a downgrade. So we see emotions as really the land of women. So that's obviously part of why men don't want to be seen as not just emotional, but emotionally intuitive, thoughtful, caring. Those are seen as submissive traits that are only done by women. And in fact, in the world in which we are, they are submissive traits. You know, these are the serving the feelings of other people is the work of people who hold less power. So we've got to finally recognize the power of emotional labor. And what's what's actually very exciting about what I also believe to be a moment of crisis, you know, we're officially in the loneliness epidemic, one in two Americans are lonely. This is an illness that kills, you know, people are dying from this, deaths of desperation are especially concentrated among men who are forced socially, culturally to cut themselves off from their emotions. You know, this is actually a wake, I hope, a wake up moment, because this is a huge moment of crisis. Once we understand that actually the work of connectivity, of community, of coming together is a work that we can all do. And that's not just something about redressing an injustice in terms of we're expecting women to do it, we're expecting mothers, wives, sisters to do it, but actually this is a healing form of work that can really bring people back together, bring people back into their emotionality. Because just to go on the tiny tangent, you know, when we cut boys from a really young age off from their emotions, we're effectively giving them a handicap. And then on the flip side, we're giving girls and women a handicap too. So we're giving boys and men this handicap of not being able to really live full emotional lives. And on the flip side, we're telling women that they've got to carry these honestly somewhat unregulated men because they've never learned to do that emotional labor of regulating their feelings and figure out what their emotional impact is on their surroundings. So, you know, how do we do it? We've, we've really got to, it's got to start with boys and educating them that they, the emotions, the understanding the full breadth of their emotions is very powerful. It's not weakness, quite the opposite. But we've also got to tell that to society, right? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite a big answer, but I think nothing short of that. I agree with you. I think we really need to re-educate ourselves on so many, on so many different constructs that underpin the intricacies of emotional labor as um, a functioning vehicle for hierarchical societies. Right, and you really illustrate this so beautifully when you talk about in your book how emotional labor is coerced, how it is extracted from women and minorities, 
um, how it is used as a form of punishment. In fact, I wanted to talk a little bit more about that because you astutely included a really, um, I think, staggering statistic in that female homicide numbers, three women are killed every single day in the United States, and it's by a boyfriend or a husband or an ex-partner, and five women are killed every single day in the United States by men they know. So homicide stands as the fourth leading cause of death for girls and women age 1 to 19, and the fifth leading cause of death for women age 20 to 44. And, and many men will say things like, but what about men? Men are killed too. Men, yes, they are. And I think one of the important things to note here is that male victims of homicide are most likely killed by other men. I don't know the exact, the exact statistics, but the number of female perpetrators is very small. Whereas women, 98% of the people who murder women are men. And we cannot look at that without saying that's a systemic issue. Exactly. No, and, and the systems of punishment that effectively force women to constantly be providing emotional labor are just so baked into our society that we barely see them anymore. And as you were mentioning at the very beginning of our interview, you know, the most innocuous form of it is someone telling you to smile, whether it's on the street or maybe in a professional circumstance, you know, a lot of women I spoke to for the book were given a lot of feedback about how they were presenting in their professional lives. And if they weren't seen as endlessly amiable and sweet and even tempered, you know, they really, really did suffer. They were denied advancement opportunities. And that's, you know, it might seem small, but that does end up having a blanket effect we talk a lot about, you know, women in the workplace, why are they not rising to the top? We're not rising to the top because of this double bind that requires us to emulate on the one hand men and masculine traits and at the same time constantly be performing the role of the mother or the sexy, you know, sexy girlfriend or whatever it is that's highly feminine that if we don't perform that, very often, you know, we're seen as a bitch. We're seen as not someone who's good to work with. So that's a very real economic consequence. And actually, there's some stories that didn't end up in the book that break my heart of just women who didn't make it, you know, women who got stuck at whatever level they did, who tried to lean in, but because of the biases all around them that were constantly being reiterated, it didn't lead anywhere. They were actually punished for that. And on the flip, you know, on the other end of the spectrum in terms of serious, serious consequences of being policed into performing the person who is effectively made liable for society's even temper and society's happiness is exactly what you're referring to, this effectively what I call and what many others call femicide epidemic, where the most dangerous person for a woman in her life is a current or former male intimate partner. And, you know, we talk, we, we're quite 
especially in progressive circles, were very well acquainted with the idea of men who can become violent because of ideas of control and dehumanizing or dehumanization of women. But one thing that was very stark to me when I did reporting around femicide here in this country, as I was writing the book for The Guardian, was that a lot of the language around why women ended up being killed by their partners or former partners was because they were angry. These partners were angry that they were no longer or that they were failing at providing happiness to them. There was this entitlement to emotional labor that when perceived as not met met on the male end could lead to men killing their female partners. And, you know, I've sometimes been accused of taking this a bit seriously, but that, how can you not take this seriously? This is what we're talking about. We're talking about real lives of women who've been taken because they weren't providing emotional labor. They weren't effectively what I call the facilitators of men's experiences. We've been stripped of our humanity and we're just here for the enjoyment, for the experiences of men. Painted in a different light, I sort of liken it to the experience of a, a, a man as a bowling ball, if you will. And women's emotional labor serves as the bumper rails for men to have a smooth experience all the way through life. And so many men participate in this entitlement without really being aware of what they're doing. Some of them do develop some insight or maybe more consciously manipulating. But for the most part, it's a really unconscious expectation that men and women have of how to be in relationship with one another. So for any men listening, you know, please hear that there is a path out of that if you don't like how that fits. And also it requires absorbing some of that emotional labor back and learning how to regulate your own emotions more effectively. And in doing so, recalibrating the balance of emotional labor in relationships, because there's no such thing as a relationship without emotional labor, whether it's romantic, sexual, platonic, familial, professional, we all do it every day. The goal is really to take accountability for when we are not doing enough of it and to look at balancing that and or compensating people for it to make them whole so that it does not become this expectation of how people, especially women and minorities, will live in sort of this place of being forever in servitude of other people's emotional experience. That's exactly it. As you're saying, forever servitude, one of the problems with the fact that we don't see emotional labor as real labor, as real work that requires time, effort, and skill to be performed is that we effectively then expect people to do it nonstop. And one of the things that's very important about casting it as labor, as something that requires this time, effort, and skill, is that then we can actually put limits to it. And it can be part of as you refer, open-ended mutuality. It can be part of, you know, it's, it's a breathing part. It's how relationships breathe. It's how they live. 
So the point is not to do away with emotional labor. The point is to spread it out more evenly and to have it recognized by all parties, especially men. And not, and that's, again, it's not just about justice. It's not just about, hey, men, there's this load. You've got you to help us carry it. It's actually because it is the work of effectively relationship building, it's work that is very rewarding when it's much more evenly spread out. And it's rewarding for the people doing it. When it's depleting, it's, it's depleting because there's only one set of groups or one you know person doing it. It's also disconnecting when it's uneven in unpaid relationship dynamics. And I think that's one of the things that I see most in couples therapy, especially with heterosexual couples, is there's this giant disparity in emotional labor. And what that can lead to is both people feeling really disconnected, um, relationships start to feel uneven in other ways, because there's not as much care or attention. If one person is loaded up with all of the emotional labor tasks in a relationship, there's not a lot of bandwidth left in that person for real connection, for real vitality, for real intimacy. They're constantly in the role of doing, 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 and shoring up the emotional experience of others. And so when partners find themselves drifting apart, that's one of the places where I ask them to look first. What does the emotional labor balance look like between the two of you? And how can you bring that closer to something that feels equitable? Totally. And I mean, I'm sure you're so well acquainted with all of this research, but that to me is where research around straight sex especially is so revealing because of cultural scripts. Very clearly what you see when you ask men versus women to describe the lens through which they understand a satisfying sexual experience. And men primarily in straight dynamics see a satisfying sexual experience through the lens of their own experience, while women primarily see satisfying sex through the lens of did the other person have a good experience? And that is just such clear, stark emotional labor and specifically emotional labor inequality. And again, the aim is not to you know, either stop doing it or to punish the person who's not doing it. The aim is, is to say, you know, there's a lot of liberation and beauty in actually evening things out more there's a lot of there's a lot of you know pleasure and wonder to be found in genuine connection um and of course you know sex can be about facilitating someone else's experience and that's it but ideally it's it's you know it's more intertwined than that it is and i it it's important to think about kind of how mutuality plays a part in all of those conversations, because not every exchange is a 50-50 ordeal. And when we start talking about things like equity, fairness, um, balance, a lot of folks feel like that means every single interaction needs to be completely fair all the way, 50-50, no questions asked, but that's not reality. I think it really is more important to, to pan out and look at a big picture conversation and evaluation of balance in any given relationship 
And overall, is it close to what feels fair and equitable and equal for both parties? Totally. You know, one of the important parts of making this invisible form of work visible is that then it can be part, not necessarily of perfect mutuality, but it can be part of a fair exchange or an exchange that feels best, kind of open-ended in the sense that you trust that what you're giving and what you're putting into this, you actually don't necessarily need to quantify because this is such a kind of virtuous circle that you're in. Obviously, for a lot of us, that either wasn't always the case or it's not the case right now. But, you know, I am I am in a relationship with a man um, and I do think that I've been socialized and practiced in emotional labor. But emotional labor is part of our conversation. So if I am providing more emotional labor, say, in one situation, the fact that it's recognized as part of our couple dynamic is actually... I mean, I don't know whether you can ever say enough because you'd have to take a specific situation, but that makes it feel like it's going to be part part of fair exchanges because I'm not constantly putting myself on the line, not being seen, being completely taken for granted, expected to do all these things. And then I'm expected to, let's say, you know, just submit constantly to whatever the whims and wills are because, you know, let's say the male partner like in so many situations, is the primary breadwinner, for example. You know, that's, it's where, it's it's not necessarily a perfect 50-50, as you're saying, but it needs to be part of conversations around exchange and mutuality and reciprocity. I so appreciate you emphasizing that. And one of the things that I thought you really highlighted beautifully in, in your book was sort of the value of emotional labor as an exercise for men to learn and be more aware of. Um, and in, in the book, when you were talking about men, and you do have a whole section addressing men and how really understanding this benefits them, which I thought was beautiful. Um, and you talk about one of the pillars of precarious masculinity, sometimes called toxic masculinity, Um, being emotional toughness, which leads many men to erroneously believe that they are just not emotional people and therefore won't be good at or don't need to participate in emotional labor. And I love that you included the stories um, about uh, the one man in particular who was just so decided that this didn't apply to him. And I think so many men are living under that Uh, myth as well, because we all have affect in us. But a lot of men have been conditioned through their their gender role socialization to not notice it. And I think it's the real grift of um, socialization for many men, because they grow up thinking that they're not emotional, but their emotions are present to everyone around them. Totally. And, you know, the way in which we think about emotionality in our culture is through language to me somewhat, I mean, totally skewed. So when you describe someone as emotional, that's seen as a huge negative, right? And when you talk about a man, let's say, being emotionally tough, that's seen as quite positive and resilient. But actually what we're talking about when we're talking about 
emotional tough well emotionally tough men is we're talking about men who probably haven't developed emotional literacy as much as other people who have learned to just ignore whatever they're feeling to repress but as you were alluding to and this is what's wonderful about recent discoveries in neuroscience is increasingly it's so clear that it's not just that we all have emotions is that we all primarily perceive the world through affect through our five senses so the idea that there is a rational thought and an emotional thought is almost it's a cartesian thought that is from you know white male western europe we are embodied you know animals we don't there's no separation and really the way in which we think of rationality versus emotionality is rationality would be actually a an emotion that's been well digested and that's understood i would say and the way in which we cast you know emotionality as a kind of dysregulated unkempt um affect that maybe someone doesn't really know what to do with that would be much more of a masculine trait as things currently stand so you know to go back to that question of how do we get people to change you know we've got to stop this misunderstanding of separation between our our ideas of rationality versus emotionality and we've got to bust up that hierarchy that rationality is is the this purely intellectual unemotional superior to actually understanding your emotions and being emotionally literate and communicative with the people around you so love the way that you phrased that it really is about emotional literacy and there's tons of research out there that talks about how men are are conditioned away from knowing about their emotions as a protective function to hold on to membership in this group of men, right? This this idea of masculinity, but it really is uh, at a huge cost to them. It, it increases lots of negative health outcomes, substance misuse and, and over-reliance. Um, it also contributes to the high rates of suicide completion for men. And one of the important um, facts that I thought was great in your book was that when men suffer the loss of a partner abruptly, their deficits in emotional intelligence and uh, their deficits in understanding how to effectively um, move with emotional labor and create strong relationships left them at um, a really negative starting point for the rest of their lives. Whereas women who are socialized to do this emotional labor and become so equipped at it um, through their gender role conditioning, if they lost a partner abruptly later in life, they actually had better outcomes. And so I think it's it really behooves men to look at their own survival rates and to think about the role that, that relationships play in shoring up a, a stronger, healthier lifetime experience and better health outcomes. Totally. Um, you know, one of the revolutionary concepts that, well, to me felt revolutionary that I came across while researching the book was the idea of time as value. And 
because because we operate in a world with a lot of fake hierarchies, sometimes it's very hard to quantify this is valuable because, you know, you can have two people just arguing about, you know, I think actually building a bridge is more valuable than taking care of a child or whatever. You know, you can't really win those battles. But what you can do when you think about time is you can say we all have 24 hours in the day. We can all measure, you know, our existence and what we do in those in that similar metric. So first of all, that's a wonderful way of thinking of disparities of what it means to be the emotional laborer in a family, in a workplace. That's going to mean time being spent on all sorts of activities tied to other people's well-being. But if you think about time in this case in terms of making an argument that it's in men's interest too to embrace emotional labor, as you mentioned, connected relationships with men are definitely tied to longevity. And then in these very tragic scenarios where men lose a female romantic partner suddenly, as things stand, that does cut off real time from their lives lived. And I really can't think of a better argument um, than to say, this will mean you'll live longer. Being happier and more connected in relationships means you will live a longer life. How can you say no to that? It's it's the million dollar question, really. <laughs> so I, I saw one of your posts on social media and you were mentioning that the overall media response to your book was not as you were hoping it would be or not as you expected. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I for a topic that for example, when I wrote about it in 2015, went you know somewhat viral. When when other people have touched it, has been very widespread in terms of attention. Mother's Day was um, almost ten ten days ago, a week ago, and there was a post that was very widely well, a bunch of posts that were very widely circulated on TikTok with a lot thousands of comments, hundreds of thousands of likes, that specifically talked about emotional labor. So I know from the grassroots perspective, because that's what it feels like, that this is something that is on a lot of people's minds. And because we haven't really tackled it socially, it feels still very frustrating as a topic. I will say that I guess we come full circle. You know, that bias that I had in 2015, that this was just a silly little topic for straight women complaining about men's socks, you know, is it that? I haven't been covered, the book hasn't been covered, it's been covered by the trades and it's been covered through word of mouth. But, um, you know, it's a mainstream book and it hasn't yet been covered the way that um, I think the, des- the, the, the topic deserves to be covered. And the workers doing all of the emotional labor, you know, I had one editor at a very high legacy um, media outlet, and you know, I have a very, I have a very strong background as a journalist. So I'm, I am talking to these editors who said, "I don't know who you're in conversation with." You know, for for a, for a piece to work, you'd have to tell me. And you know, 
I'm in conversation with all of the women in America, you know? <laughs> I'm in conversation, honestly, with everyone in America because this affects everyone. But I've got, you know, we've, I've, I've now got this job to really make people or invite people to understand the breadth of this form of work and why I think there is an urgent need to tackle it. I also think that thankfully, especially in progressive circles, we do think about other forms of discrimination. Of We quite rightly think of racism as a systemic issue. We talk about systemic racism. We don't talk about systemic sexism. And this is what I think we really need to do. Because again, you can tell a woman to lean in at work but if she's surrounded by all sorts of people who have biases who are going to then punish her and not promote her because she's being assertive and aggressive in a way that reflects her abilities, you know, I can't, I can't tell an individual woman that that's how she's going to solve it. We've got to all solve it together. And that's probably a kind of a, that's a weightier lift, isn't it? It is. And I, I do think that that's exactly why maybe your book has not been given the voice and the megaphone that it deserves. And certainly anyone who reads it cover to cover, like I did in one day, <laughs> I mean, I couldn't put it down. It resonated so much with my experience as a woman, um, as a psychologist, and so much of the work that I do with clients and the pain that I see in their lives on a day-to-day -day basis, I mean, it's a reckoning, honestly, your book. And it, I think, scares people because it really is a completely different paradigm and blows open a lot of things that we believe are truths, but are in fact constructed ways of being humans. And if I'm candid, I think a lot of people are well aware that emotional labor is exploited in many different pockets of daily life, but they're probably so exhausted from their labor being exploited that they don't have a lot of energy to tackle this because the pushback can be so strong from the people who benefit by not having to do the emotional labor. It's just, sometimes it feels like it's just much more comfortable to not rattle anything too much because it all is actually much more fragile. It's all, you know, way less entrenched. It's easier to say, um, this is just how it is, you know, and I'll just do the best with, with, with this than to say, actually, no, this is being performed and re-performed and actually this is all basically a house of cards. I actually find that quite exciting. You know, I, I think, you know, this is the sign that there's so much more justice that is possible for so many of us. And again, justice in this situation, it doesn't mean vindication, quite the opposite. You know, I feel like actually this book has meant that I've transitioned, I was a full-time journalist and really I've become, I'm definitely a journalist. I, I applied my journalistic skills, research interview skills to, to do the book, but I'm also an advocate at this point. I'm a feminist author and advocate, and I believe in this far too much, you know, to just move on to the next project and, you know, deal with the fact that I've been somewhat 
it's hard for me to say it from an ego perspective, but somewhat ignored by, by the people that I thought would be excited to have the conversation. But maybe that was naive. But I think there's also an eagerness culturally that we do have to tear a woman down when she's not being, you know, perfect. But then when she's being serious and I have all of the receipts, that's why I took so many years to do this. I knew that if I was going to do this, I had to be serious about it. And I had to really make sure that I had a really watertight case because people were otherwise not going not, not to take me seriously. But a serious woman is, is harder to take of writing the book and now there's climbing the mountain of getting the word out and and getting these conversations to happen so that we can start that cultural shift that's so needed. It is. Well, thank you for coming on to the show today and talking with us about it. What comes next for you? But I really wanted to take this year to, you know, do that pushing because if I don't push, I don't think, you know, the analogy would be something about a tree falling in the middle of a forest and no one hearing, you know, I've got to make sure that that the tree falls and everyone hears. And then honestly, I think that what I hope over the next year, including through these kinds of conversations, I'm a journalist. That's the skill set I brought to this, but I want to have conversations about change. You know, I want to have conversations with professional therapists and thinking about, you know, what are the ways in which we can integrate these systemic issues with individual therapy or couples therapy. I want to talk to policymakers about what the actual tangible solutions are, especially as, you know, we're obsessively talking about work getting automated. But the work that's getting automated is intellectual work. I mean, physical work first, but intellectual work, actually some creative work. The work we can't automate is emotional labor, emotional work. So that's, again, this is actually a beautiful moment of opportunity, even as we're going through a crisis, to redefine what work looks like, the kind of work that's going to persevere, that's not going to go anywhere, and the way in which we want to then treat the workers. And the workers might be what we've always thought of as workers, which is in the workplace, you know, the nurses, the teachers, because this is a bit of a paradigm shifting um, lens in some ways. I would love to you know, start thinking about that as my as my next project. One of the things I'll invite listeners to do, whether you're a therapist or not, is to read the book immediately, if not sooner, and then to recommend it to at least five people that you know. And I sent out a blast text to all of the women in my life the other day and encouraged them to buy it. And I sent it to the people that I know who work for bigger organizations and who work for, um, for example, Department of Health and Human Services, because emotional labor underpins everything that we do. And so it's really important for therapists, for managers, for parents, for partners to have a look at what your own relationship with emotional labor is and how you might be denying the labor of others denying your own labor, and really starting to have a a curious conversation with yourself and the people around you about what does it mean to truly value our own time, our own labor, and that of others? And what might it mean in terms of liberation? What might it mean in terms of getting your life back if we were able to have more transparent conversations about this? What a wonderful framing. Thank you so much for that. 
that's wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you, Rose. I really appreciate you coming here. Um, how can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more about your book or if they want to work with you? Um, my So my website is extraordinarily simple right now, but there is my email at the end of it. So my website is rosehackman.com. So, and I'm on Instagram at rosiebug, R-O-S-E-E-B-U-G-G. Same on TikTok. My email is rose.hackman.el at gmail.com. Amazing. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. Stay connected with me on Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Kate Balistrary. Everyone has questions and I want to answer as many as I can. So feel free to email your questions to question at getnakedpodcast.com. If you're looking for a free 30-minute consultation with me or someone on my team, visit modernintimacy.com. And don't forget to join our newsletter, Modern Intimacy, on Substack. Let's meet back here next week. A new episode drops every Tuesday. Disclaimer, this podcast is not a substitute for therapy and does not constitute a professional relationship with Dr. Kate Balistrieri or Modern Intimacy. This podcast is strictly for education and entertainment purposes only. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.